From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, the new film from master documentarian Frederick Wiseman, is now playing in select theaters. Wiseman is a favorite of the Film Society, and many of his films have premiered here over the years. In 2006, the filmmaker stopped by for a special master class to share his thoughts on his work, the issues and implications of his films, and his process. You'll hear a portion of that talk first. Then, we'll go to 2013, when Wiseman stopped by to premiere his film at Berkeley during the 51st New York Film Festival. Let's go now to our masterclass with Frederick Wiseman from 2006. Thanks. Um, What I thought I'd do tonight is uh, briefly describe the way I work and what I think I've been trying to do uh, over the last last 40 years. Uh, And, uh, but as I go along, if any of you have any questions, uh, I think it'd be more interesting for the audience to, you know, you know, uh, if you ask the questions any time, and I'll get myself back on the track to the extent that I've lost it. Uh, and after I briefly describe what I've been doing, I'll show some film clips uh, and uh, from a number of the movies, and then try to discuss with you what I think. I want you to tell me what I think I was doing, uh, uh, and, and and in that way try to recreate, uh, in part at least, uh, uh, the editorial process that uh, that I was going through. Well, in any case, since uh, 1966, I've been doing a series of films on American institutions without any uh, precise definition of an institution, uh, other than a place that's existed for a while and has limited uh, geographic boundaries. Uh, Often it's a building, uh, uh, in any case, it's always a relatively small geographic area. The largest area, I think, was the Canal Zone, uh, followed by a a chunk of West Germany uh, where I did maneuver uh, following a tank company through the war, through war games, but most often it's in a building or two. Um, and uh, the building or the institution, like the Welfare Center on 14th Street, excerpts of which I'll show you in a bit, uh, uh, defines the movie. In a sense, whatever goes on in that building is fit for inclusion in the movie, and what goes on outside the building or is discussed as having gone outside the building is uh, not in the movie or is, or is another movie. Uh, and uh, I, I found it relatively easy over the years to get permission. I get permission by calling up uh, the head of the institution uh, and asking whether I can come see them. And then I write them a letter uh, and I, I talk to them. Uh, and after they say okay, and I think it's very rare that I've been turned down. Uh, uh, and when I talk to them, I, I, uh, I'm very straightforward uh, about what I'm doing. Uh, um, uh, there's, uh, my, my conversation goes something like this. I want to make a movie about uh, uh, Welfare Center. Uh, I don't know what the themes of the movie are going to be. I'd like permission to hang around for anywhere from four to six weeks. During that time, I'll collect anywhere from 80 to 120 hours of film. Um, uh, I don't know uh, what, I have no idea what the structure of the film is going to be or the point of view. Uh, Nobody will be photographed who doesn't agree to be photographed. If anybody says no, there's no argument. Um, And, um, but generally speaking, I request permission to film the day-to-day activities of the place. And uh, when they say yes, as they've done, I think, 95% of the time, uh, I then write a letter summarizing what I've said and asking them to send me a signed copy uh, of the letter back so that that becomes kind of an informal contract between me and the place. Uh, and one of the things I always say in, in the letter is that I retain editorial control of the film so there's no confusion about that a year later. Um, and then I always try to start shooting um, soon after I get permission because I'm always fearful that somebody's going to change their mind. Um, and uh, the, I, I don't do much of any research in advance. 
Um, the research generally consists of being at the place a day or two, getting a sense of the geography, uh, who the principal players are, when the staff meetings take place, uh, or any other regularly scheduled meetings. Uh, and uh, then uh, we just show up, and the crew consists of myself, I direct and I do the sound, I work with a cameraman and a third person, uh, the assistant, who carries the extra equipment and changes the magazines and spends most of his time in the changing bag, which usually is the subject of a few jokes uh, along the lines, what are you doing in that bag? Um, uh, uh, no, the equipment, 98% of the shots are handheld. Very occasionally do we use lights, uh, only when, there isn't, when the natural light isn't enough for the film stock, which is fast film stock. In the beginning it was, uh, Kodak double X, and uh, now it's fast uh, Kodak color film and the Vision 500 series. Uh, the camera has uh, initially, 40 years ago, was an Oricon, then it was an Eclair, now it's an Aton. Uh, the mic has always been one version or another of a Sennheiser, uh, the 416, the 815. Uh, the tape recorder is always various manifestations of the Nagra, the 4.2, the ISL, uh, and recently a Fostex digital recorder. Um, and uh, the, the basic technique really is just to hang around uh, and uh, uh, shoot whatever interests me. I mean, sometimes a sequence is shot because somebody's wearing a funny hat. And so, you know, I like the funny hat and we follow the person down the corridor and uh, that may or may not lead to something. Uh, uh, sometimes it's a regularly scheduled staff meeting. Uh, 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 but whatever it is, over the course of the shortest period of time is four weeks, the longest period of time is 12 weeks, I accumulate, uh, as I said a moment ago, 80, minimum of 80 hours. In the case of the film I just finished, uh, State Legislature, uh, it's 160 hours, it's 160 hours because I uh, had the practical experience of discovering that legislators like to talk. Uh, um, and so uh, that, that presented some problems in just wading through the material in the editing. Um, so at the end of the shooting period, and I know that, I know that you know, I, I make the, like everything else, it's a subject of judgment that the shooting is over mainly because you're tired of uh, holiday in life uh, and uh, uh, have the feeling that, you know, with 100, 120 hours of film, I have enough to cut a 15-minute movie. Uh, um, uh, I go home and I begin to uh, look at the rushes. Well, during, during the shooting, I look at silent rushes after the third night every night because the, the, the cycle is you shoot send it by Federal Express to the lab, the lab develops it, sends back a, a one light work print, uh, and uh, uh, on the third day, look at the one light work print after the shooting is over, and then I send it back to my editing room where an assistant synchronizes the sound and the picture. So when I come back from the shooting after you know, a bit of a rest, uh, I start reviewing the rushes and making up a log. And in the, uh, Every shot is given a number. Uh, so, example, the first shot on roll one would be one one, etc. Uh, and and uh, a little dot goes on the flash frame at the beginning of the shot. And a log is made up summarizing in a one sentence what's uh, on that shot. And also in the log, the uh, the print through numbers, which are the numbers on the original negative, uh, and the edge code numbers, which are numbers that are put on every 16 frames on the picture and the track. Uh, are recorded. Uh, and the, that's the bookkeeping aspect. And when you have the kind of the volume of material that I have, it's very important to be able to find shots and find sequences so that uh, I make a big effort. It's probably the only aspect of my life in which I'm at all orderly. Uh, but I'm very careful about uh, 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 logging and making sure I know exactly where every shot and every sequence is. Then I start to look at the, uh, uh, at the rushes, and I start off, I, I look at everything, but I, I don't really, I don't always follow the order in which it was shot. I start off by looking at things that interest me, 
things that I remembered liking during the course of the shooting. And then over the course of maybe four to six weeks, I've looked at and uh, made an initial evaluation of uh, all the sequences that I have. And I have a, an informal rating system, which I've adapted from the Guide Michelin, those of you who traveled in France, uh, know what I'm referring to. I, I give each sequence one, two, or three stars. Uh, and that helps me uh, initially discard quite a lot of the footage, because often uh, things that you think were great at the moment turn out to be not very interesting when you look at them, and things you thought were terrible or of no value at all uh, turn out to be the most interesting sequences. I mean, it, it's hard to predict it. And after I've looked at all the rushes, uh, I, uh, uh, I start editing, again, sequences that I like. And over the course of maybe six or eight months, I will have gone through all the sequences that I think might make it into the final film, uh, since they're candidate sequences. And I've put them into some kind of usable form. And when that's done, over the course of two or three days, I uh, assemble the first structure of the film. And I can do that very quickly at that point because I, I think I know the material inside out. Uh, and uh, while I haven't made any effort to write out a structure on paper in advance, uh, because that doesn't work for me, I have to see how the sequences uh, look in relationship to each other. I, at the end of two or three days, I have a first assembly, which is usually somewhere between 30 and 40 minutes longer than the final film. And then after that, uh, I, uh, I work on the rhythm of the film, the internal rhythm of each sequence and, and the relationship between the sequences. For example, when a, when a sequence is initially edited, it might have a beginning and a middle and an end. But when it's placed in relation to, uh, to other sequences, you may, for example, not need the beginning because that same material may be covered in a better fashion in another, in another sequence. Uh, and I work very hard on the transitions between the sequences and trying to find a dramatic structure for the material. Uh, because, uh, although not everybody would agree with me, I, I, I'm trying to make a movie uh, and uh, I, I think uh, I, I work very hard on uh, the traditional issues uh, uh, that come up in feature filmmaking, uh, but are also the, this aspect of the editing process is very similar to writing, uh, because you get involved in issues of characterization, uh, passage of time, uh, 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 foreshadowing of events, uh, 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 and at the fringe, uh, perhaps, uh, expression of more complicated ideas uh, uh, by the order in which you uh, uh, arrange the sequences. Um, and uh, I, I find the editing process particularly exciting because, I mean, it's the old cliche of finding the statue under the stone. In this case, it's a question of finding the movie under the mound of rushes. Uh, and the, uh, the initial stages of the editing process are, are rather boring, but as it, it as I get into it and the process accelerates, I find I can't stay away from the editing room and I work in the last three or four months, seven days a week, uh, 10 or 12 hours a day, which I don't find particularly uh, wearing because it's interesting. And perhaps one of the reasons it's interesting is that I like talking to myself and uh, that's uh, uh, frequently find that better than most other conversations. Uh, and, uh, and that's basically what editing is, is mumbling to yourself trying to figure out uh, what you've got. Now, now, in the course of shooting these movies, if you're patient enough, you're, you, you sometimes can be extremely lucky. Uh, and you get sequences that you would have to be a great writer to imagine. And as a documentary filmmaker, you just happen to be lucky enough to be present when they're occurring. Uh, uh, and at the same time, you have to recognize the significance or the implications or the connotations of what uh, what it is that's going on in front of you. Uh, so that, uh, to me, the, the most, uh, I don't know, I, I shouldn't say the most important aspect, but uh, the, uh, the, the most interesting aspect of making these movies for me is trying to figure out what it is that I'm seeing and hearing. Uh, uh, because given uh, a certain minimum uh, competence in, in shooting and recording the sound, uh, the question is, 
what, it, what is it you're seeing and hearing, and what is the relationship of the one sequence to another? And that is something I think that's not so much, to, not, really not dependent on filmmaking skills uh, as it is on your, your general uh, experience in evaluating uh, both your own and other people's behavior. Uh, because documentary filmmaking, at least of this sort, is a study of behavior. So you have to be uh, concerned and you have to find fascinating uh, the way people walk, the clothes they wear, the words they use, uh, the order of the words, the pauses, uh, the way they move their head. Uh, uh, and at the same time, as you're trying to figure out what's going on, you have to try and determine how to arrange uh, these fragments in an order that conveys, uh, or at least tries to convey, your own reaction to them to someone else who hasn't had the uh, opportunity to be at the place initially or to study the material for eight or ten months. Um, so, in any case, at the end of, uh, after I have that preliminary assembly, uh, it takes pro probably another five or six weeks to arrive at the uh, at the final version of the film, and then um, uh, I have all the preparations for the mix, which is to adjust for those who aren't filmmakers, just adjusting the sound levels and, and polishing up the soundtrack. Uh, and then the film is finished, and for me at least, uh, to avoid serious postpartum depression, uh, it's necessary at that point to start thinking about another film, which is uh, what I try always to do. Uh, now, the worst part of filmmaking is raising the money, um, but uh, obviously it's absolutely necessary. I, I get the money for these movies uh, from actually very few sources. I made a study a few years ago, and I think maybe about 18 or 20 percent of the funding for the films came from one branch or another of public television, uh, uh, Corporation of Public Broadcasting, PBS, ITVS. Um, and the rest, when it came, came from foundations. And there are really only eight or ten places in the world that put up money for the kind of movies that I do. Uh, the places that I just mentioned in America, plus the National Endowment of the Arts, occasionally the National Endowment of the Humanities, um, uh, a few of the major foundations like uh, Ford or Diamond or MacArthur. Um, uh, and occasionally it's possible to get money from the BBC. It used to be possible to get money from Channel 4 in England, but that it's, at least for me, many other filmmakers, is no longer possible, and occasionally money from Arte in France and Germany. And that's about it. I never take private investment in the movies because I can't do that with a clear conscience because they don't, uh, uh, they're not uh, good investments. Uh, uh, and uh, when the film is finished, uh, uh, all the films have been broadcast on, uh, on PBS, and I... I I've had a very good relationship with Channel 13 in New York for years, uh, uh, and they have always been the presenting station. Originally, I went to, because I live in Boston, I went to um, Channel 2 in Boston, but I had trouble getting anyone to talk to me there. Uh, and I, I uh, didn't have that problem in New York, so I've always worked through the New York station. Um, so that, very briefly, is what... Uh, what I've been doing and the way that I work. If there are no questions about, the, yes. Now the question is when I get turned down, do I try to find another place that uh, does the, substantially the same work? It's interesting that you picked uh, the example of the police department because that's what happened. I started to do the film which became Law and Order uh, in Los Angeles and after I think about a week shooting in Los Angeles, this is in 1968, I was told I could do whatever I wanted except ride around in the police cars. And since there were no foot patrols, that really limited the story. Uh, and uh, uh, I went to, a friend of mine knew the chief in Kansas City, and he said, come on out. And uh, again, what, what I'm about to say is an illustration of what's very often the case. It, things run counter to cliche. Because when the movie was finished, the, the uh, police chief in Kansas City who had seen the film was roundly criticized at a police chief's convention for letting me make the film because there's one scene in the film where a policeman strangles a woman who's accused of prostitution in front of a camera and a sun gun. It was, one of the, it was in the 
basement of a hotel and there was no regular light. And by chance, we had a sun gun with us. And uh, she had knocked a, an undercover, in order to make an arrest for, for uh, prostitution in Kansas City, Missouri at the time, the police had to have a price and an act. Uh, so it effectively meant that the undercover cop had to get in bed with the woman and I guess uh, at least down to his undershorts and then presumably at the last minute say, I arrest you. Uh, uh, and he had done that and when he was leading her down the stairs of the city hotel, he, uh, uh, she knocked him down, knocked him down the stairs and fled. He then called the vice squad car and we were in the vice squad car and uh, one of the great mistakes I made in my life was not leaving the tape recorder on while we were waiting in the vice squad car because I would have had the, be would have had the best selling record of all time as those guys describe some of their adventures. Um, uh, but we came to the hotel and the, and the bellboy said the woman had fled to the basement and uh, there was no light in the basement and uh, it was a dingy cellar filled with old furniture and one of the cops found this woman hiding under the furniture and dragged her out and started to strangle her you know, right in front of the camera for about 20 seconds. And then he let her go. And then she says to the other cop that was holding her arm, uh, he was trying to strangle me. And then uh, uh, the cop said, oh, he wasn't doing that at all. You were just imagining it. Uh, and uh, anyway, that was sh scene was shown along with the rest of the film at the police chief's convention. And, and the... Uh, uh, the other police chief said to the chief in Kansas City, uh, you know, you shouldn't let a scene like that be shown. And uh, Chief Kelly in Kansas City said, if you guys don't think that happens in your department, you, got, you have your head in the sand. Uh, and uh, that was, and th that's a, a dramatic, or I think it's a dramatic illustration of something that happens all the time. Things frequently go counter to cliche uh, because I mean, in my case, I don't know about most of you in this audience, before I made that movie, I had no real experience with police work other than you know, my many speeding tickets or parking, uh, parking violations, but I had opinions about the police. Uh, now, this was in 1968, and the police had rioted in the streets of Chicago, so it was uh, received wisdom the police were all pigs, and certainly their behavior in Chicago fit that definition. But when you ride around in a police car for about 20 seconds, you realize that the pr piggery is not restricted to the police because you see what people do to each other that makes it necessary to have the police in the first place, which is not to excuse or condone police brutality when it exists, but, uh, but it, it tends not, uh, you tend not to isolate police brutality as the sole examples of uh, brutality or violence. Uh, and that was one of the experiences I had making the movie, Law and Order. But it's, it's also the experience I've had in all the movies. I try, and you know, I, it's not for me to say how successfully I do this, to approach each subject with an open mind. It's not that I don't have my own little stereotypes and cliches, but I try to be aware of what they are so that uh, I can respond to the experience I've had at the place for four to 12 weeks. Uh, and spending, you know, eight months to a year uh, trying to think my way through the material in the editing process. And I haven't yet made a film where I haven't had an experience similar to the experience I had in Law and Order, that uh, the real where the reality is infinitely more complicated, ambiguous, uh, and, uh, 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 than than the sort of the stereotypes and cliches that I started with. I mean, there's also the risk that I've simply substituted new stereotypes and cliches for the ones that I started with, but naturally I don't think that's the case. Um, any other questions before? Yeah. The question is, do I feel in some cases I was luckier than others or, or wish that I'd stayed around and gotten more? Well, strangely enough, uh, I tend to like them all. Uh, 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 although they're, you know, the, I have a shifting list of favorites depending on my mood. Uh, but I think I've been lucky in all of them because, again, I, I don't invent these sequences. I'm just lucky enough to have been there when some of the things go on. I mean, and, and for example, I'll show you this sequence from Hospital I'll show you tonight or a sequence from Essene, which is a film about a monastery. Uh, I mean, you'd have to be a genius novelist to invent some of the dialogue. 
uh, and you're not a genius documentary filmmaker, you're just lucky enough to be there when it happens, and what you have to be able to do is recognize what you've got uh, or, and the implications of, of what you're seeing and hearing. In, in retrospect, are there any scenes I wish I hadn't released? No. There are there's some that I didn't use that I wished I'd used, uh, but not many. But my, I mean, that, that, you know, part of that question is related to the whole issue of permission and consent. Uh, I, the first film I did, Titicut Follies, I, I try to get written releases, but that, that, in my experience, didn't work because people were afraid of signing uh, 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 written release because they thought they were turning over their car or their house or whatever. Uh, but uh, uh, what I do get is tape-recorded consents. Uh, and while I, I don't always get them from everybody, I make a serious effort to get them from everybody. Uh, and that uh, is, is a the legal way of getting permission. And I, I have to, I operate on the assumption, which is I think an assumption that's generally made in the law, that people know what they're doing. Uh, that may be contrary to what our experience is, uh, but it's the only safe assumption. I, I make it very clear to the people who are being photographed and recorded what I'm doing, how the film's going to be used. When, I, when I'm asking their permission, I, I have a little you know, short speech that I give, which I tape record and tell them I'm tape, tape recording it. And uh, at the end of which, you know, it goes something like this, this movie is going to be on public television. I don't know where this sequence is going to be used. I end up only using 3% of the material that's shot. Um, and it'll be on public television. It may be released in cassettes and DVDs, etc., cetera, uh, or possibly theatrical release. Do you have any objection? Uh, and uh, in my experience, 99.9% .9 of the time, people agree. Um, and uh, uh, but the, the, the I think tw there were two sequences that I uh, decided not to shoot, and I think in retrospect it was a mistake. There was one uh, in hospital, which was shot at Metropolitan Hospital, up at 97th or 98th Street, and and. Uh, and uh, uh, East Side Drive uh, in the emergency room, and a, a, guy, a man who worked in the subway uh, uh, touched the third rail, and all his nerve endings were burnt, and he was dying, although he didn't feel any pain because he, his nerves were all fried, uh, and his family was gathered around him, and I, I thought I shouldn't, the family agreed to have it shot, but I decided not to, which it was a mistake, I mean, because it would have been a good scene and, and the I had the permission. And another time, also in hospital, uh, a night uh, attendant was lifting a man onto a gurney and the man had been in an automobile accident and the night attendant, and the man didn't speak English and only Spanish, but, and I don't speak any Spanish, but the man started to scream, so I shrewdly recognized that there was something wrong. And, uh, uh, told at the night hospital uh, attendant that maybe he should lift him on the other side, and that screwed up that sequence. But I, I, I try not, I think that's one of the few times I've ever intervened. Uh, both those would have been good sequences to use for the film. But other than that, no. Now we'll go to the 2013 New York Film Festival, where Frederick Wiseman's At Berkeley had its premiere. During the festival, the filmmaker joined Kent Jones on stage for one of our HBO director's dialogues. Let's go to that now. Since there was no audience mic at the event, I will be repeating the questions throughout. Over the years, you've been asked so many times, we talked about this yesterday, this question, don't you feel that the presence of the cameras when you're shooting um, uh, alters the reality of the situation? And um, Fred has always had a very, very uh, cogent and um, intelligent answer to that question. And I think that uh, 
anyone who's ever watched his films and who's ever seen films where people are kind of uh, fabricating their behavior for the camera can see the difference. They could just trust their own, uh, their own intelligence, their own eyes. But I wanted to ask you, that the, the frequency with which you're asked the question has become a subject in and of itself that I think is kind of interesting. What do you, because for, you know, for your entire career you've been hearing it. <laughs> so I just kind of wanted to reflect on that a little bit. I mean, why, why it's, I mean, I, you know, I, actually, I don't know. I mean, I, I can improvise an answer, but I, I would suspect it's because, it's at least in part because people surprised at the range of behavior uh, that you're able to get uh, with this technique. Um, and to some extent, maybe people don't want to believe that other people can act the way they sometimes do. Meaning what? Well, in both good and bad. I right. mean, I, I, not necessarily just because it, it shows people uh, uh, doing difficult, uncomfortable, or occasionally sadistic or cruel things. But it's equally true that uh, some people don't want to admit that other people can do nice and kind and helpful things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a tough one for a lot of people to admit. And in part, that's related to the idea that documentary film right. should always be an expose, uh, should reveal something bad about government or people's behavior. Well, and I think it's equally important I don't neglect that, as I, uh, as I think some of the films demonstrate, but I think it's equally important that uh, when people are doing a good job and care and are kind and sensitive to other people, that's an equally good subject for documentary film. Mm, yeah. Um, that's true, because, I mean, that is where most people's direction lies. They think, well, if it's a documentary, immediately they, they go to expose. Um, well, and they, and they can be allied with, with uh, both with the pious sentiment of the film and, and, and uh, the creation of their own. Um, what was it that moved you to pick up a camera and when you began? Well, I, I had the misfortune of going to law school and, and uh, <laughs> uh, I didn't like it. And after the first semester, never went to class uh, and read novels for three years. There was a very in the library opposite the law, the general library opposite the law school, they had a collection of novels and poems and play, everything you'd want to read, and very comfortable chairs. And, uh, <laughs> and I, I passed my law school days there after the first semester borrowing notes from my friends. I mean, it, it was well known among my friends that I'd appear in the library about 4.30 on the day before the exam and borrow notes and make sure I got a good night's sleep before the exam and uh, I was lucky enough to be able to get through. Mm -hmm. But I got a very good education uh, in other things. And then I reached the witching age of 30 and decided I better do something I like. So. Yeah. But you've often talked about, your, indeed right now you're saying you spent your time, uh, your misspent youth, I guess, um, reading novels and poems and plays, but not going to the movies. So what is it that drew you to cinema? Well, I, I, used, uh, I lived in Paris for a couple of years in the late 50s, and I went to the movies a lot, uh, um, you know, like four, five, six times a week. And uh, I was always interested in the movies, and as a child, I'd always been interested in the movies, and that's what I wanted, you know. I mean, I, I, I didn't mean to neglect my movie-going career, but I was just contrasting, you know, the law school. Uh, I never went to movies during class hours. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, uh. Okay. Do you, do you want us to send a note to the uh, school to, just to let them know? Right, right, right. <laughs> In case they're in the mood to give you an honorary degree later. Right. Uh, yeah. Um, well, what, was, what were the movies that really struck you during your days in Paris? Well, I, I went to everything. I mean, I don't think I, I had necessarily had a particularly good taste. I just went to the movies a lot. Uh, as a child, I, I also, I mean, I, I grew up on uh, Marx Brothers movies and Buster Keaton and W.C. Fields, and uh, uh, W.C. Fields has still made the dirtiest movie ever made called The Dentist. I don't know if you... Uh, I know it very uh, well. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, I, you know, like everybody... Well, I, I was sort of in a transitional age, or I was at the end of the time when everybody wanted to be Hemingway and Fitzgerald. 
Uh, okay. Uh, but I was certainly one of them. Mm. Uh, and then I, it morphed over into making movies. But did you try your hand at writing for a while? A little bit, uh, not very successfully. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and not very diligently either. Which doesn't mean that if had I been diligent about it, it would have been successful. Uh, it's never too late. Um, I, I, uh, I guess that it was at uh, when were when were the first really lightweight cameras available? Um, lightweight sixteen cameras. Well, they were available in the late fifties. But what really made it possible to make these kind of movies is somebody figured out how the tape recorder and the camera could run at the same speed. Uh, and that, I think, was in the late 50s, early 60s. And, and I was a beneficiary of that, uh, one of many beneficiaries of that, which, because it meant that you could make a movie on any subject with available light and move around quickly and easily. Uh, and that's what opened up uh, uh, ordinary experience uh, to, uh, to movies. Mm. So were you... Um in contact with some of the other filmmakers who were who were working in that vein at that time? Not really, no, yeah. uh, because I, I lived in Boston, and, and uh, which was fortunate, I think, because the, the documentary world is so competitive and so nasty. Yeah. By living in Boston, uh, I was out of out of that. Out of the and uh, Maisel's Penny Baker Drew. Uh, well, I'm not naming any names. But, okay. Uh, <laughs> not that they're nasty and competitive. No, no certainly not. I'm yeah. collaborative. Mm. Uh, yeah. And then what were so what led to, to making Titicut Follies? Uh, what led to making Titicut Follies? I, I uh, for reasons unknown to me, I'd been hired to teach at Boston University Law School, and one of the courses I taught uh, was legal medicine, uh, and to make the class more interesting both for me and for the students, I took them on field trips to uh, criminal trials, uh, uh, mental hospitals, uh, state prison, uh, parole board hearings, uh, to, to sort of try and give them a sense of the reality behind the dry and poorly written appellate court decisions, which uh, they had to read most of the time. Uh, and one of the places I took them to was the Bridgewater state prison for the criminally insane. And I still vividly remember my first visit there. And when, in the course of those couple of years, I decided I didn't want to teach anymore, uh, but wanted to make movies, Bridgewater uh, uh, seemed uh, a good subject for a film. And I knew the superintendent there. And uh, he immediately allied himself with the idea of the film. But it nevertheless still took me a year and a half to get permission. Mm. Um, were you supervised when you were shooting the film? I mean, were there, were, did you have watchers, people who were watching what you filmed? Well, I, I always had to be accompanied by a guard because you needed somebody with a key to get from one part of the prison to another. But nobody supervising, in the sense of nobody ever said no to anything I wanted to shoot. I got quite friendly with the principal guard uh, who who, who was uh, accompanied us? Uh, he uh, his name was Eddie Pacheco, and uh, he was. For those of you who've seen the film, he was the master of ceremonies in the film. But I, I, Eddie was a very charming guy with a severe Ed Sullivan fantasy life. Uh, he liked to break into song and dance uh, all the time, which was good for the film. Um, and he also had a side business, uh, making false teeth. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which I didn't include in the film. And his fantasy life was that he wanted to be Ed Sullivan. That's he wanted to be yeah, sad, <laughs> right? Song and dance dentist. Uh, uh. So, can you re refresh our memories about the what happened with Titicut Follies? Uh, yeah. Well, I, I made the film. I made the film with permission of of the. Uh, superintendent and the commissioner of correction and the attorney general of Massachusetts. And then uh, when the film was finished, I showed it to the superintendent uh, and he liked the film a lot. Uh, and I showed it to the commissioner of correction and he, he also liked the film. And I showed it to Elliot Richardson, who was then the, um, as attorney general, uh, as uh, lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, he had been instrumental. He had made the key telephone call that got me permission to make the film. And, 
And he loved the film when he saw it, but at this point he was the attorney general. This was a year later. Um, and uh, when reviews of the film began to appear after it was shown at the Lincoln Center Festival, uh, Richardson began to get calls from people, angry calls, asking how he could possibly have allowed me to make the film. And at that point, to protect his political career because he wanted to run for governor, he then got an injunction, uh, a temporary injunction, preventing the film from uh, being shown in Massachusetts. It was shown for a short while after Lincoln Center at, at a theater on 57th Street. And then the Massachusetts legislature investigated, had two weeks of hearings to determine how I got permission to make the film because they wanted to get at Richardson through the film um, because I thought they could damage him politically because he, was, he had been instrumental in my getting permission. And then there was a, a, a trial, a 19-day trial, and the issue in the trial was uh, first that I, an allegation I had breached an oral contract giving the state the right of final cut of the film. Uh, secondly, that the film was an invasion of privacy of one of the inmates who was shown naked in a cell. And third, uh, uh, an allegation that all the receipts of the film should be held in trust for the benefit of the inmates. Um, since there were no receipts, that was not a difficult issue to deal with. Uh, on the privacy issue, which is the principal allegation, there was no right of privacy in Massachusetts at the time. A right of privacy only exists as a consequence of uh, legislation, statute, or common law uh, tradition, and neither of those existed in Massachusetts. Um, um, and um, there was absolutely no evidence to be had by the state that I had in any way ceded my editorial rights to uh, inexperienced editors like the Commissioner of Correction and the superintendent and the attorney general. Um, uh, but nevertheless, the allegation was made, and the trial court found against me on, a, uh, on the censorship issue, on the editorial issue, and on the privacy issue, and uh, decreed that the negative should be destroyed and burnt. Uh, and he described the, the judge described the film as a nightmare of ghoulish obscenities, which, when the film finally opened 24 years later, I was tempted to put on the marquee of the theater. Uh, <laughs> as an inducement to the public. Um, uh, but uh, I appealed to the Massachusetts Supreme Court, um, and the Massachusetts Civil Liberties Union uh, appointed a committee of five uh, distinguished uh, lawyers to determine what, their point of, what the Civil Liberties Union point of view should be about the film. And without having seen the film, no member of the committee had seen the film, they, they recommended to the court that uh, um, uh, the film be banned uh, except for uh, uh, select uh, groups of people, namely doctors, lawyers, judges, legislators, people interested in custodial care and students in these and related fields. Uh, and the Mass Supreme Court bought that argument of the Civil Liberties Union, and the, the decision was that the film couldn't be shown publicly, but it could be shown to that special group on condition that I give the court and the Attorney General's office a week's notice of any screening and uh, file an affidavit uh, both before and after the screening that everybody that saw the film was within the class of people allowed to see the film. Um, that was impossible because I had no personal investigative force. Uh, and so for six or seven years, the film wasn't shown at all. And then there was a new attorney general in Massachusetts, and my lawyers went to see him, and he agreed to a modification of the order, uh, which allowed me to show the film uh, in schools and colleges and public libraries on condition that if, 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 say, it was going to be shown in a college, if the instructor showing the film signed the affidavit that it was only going to be seen by the class allowed to see the film, then I could rely on that signed statement uh, and have the film shown without any trouble. So the film was shown quite a bit under those circumstances. Uh, and um, then in the mid-'80s, the original judge 
died. And there was a headline in the Boston Globe saying, Titty Cut Follies Judge Dead, uh, uh, which didn't displease me. As, uh, uh, and um, it, we brought the case, we asked the case be reconsidered, and a new judge said, uh, appointed a master, who was a special agent of the court, to determine whether the showing of the film would be in the best interest of the surviving inmates, of which there were at that point about 30. So he interviewed all the surviving inmates, most of whom were no longer in Bridgewater, but in old age homes around the state, and decided that it, was, it wouldn't hurt them to have the film shown. Uh, and so then the judge, the new judge said, I could show the film if I blacked out the faces of the inmates. Uh, I refused to do that, saying that while it was, could be done in, in video, uh, it couldn't be done on film, and in any case, it would destroy whatever uh, effect the film might have if you couldn't see the faces of the people in it. So we asked him to reconsider, and he reconsidered, and he then said the film was fully protected by the First Amendment and could be freely shown, and in 1990 it was, which was 23 years after the original uh, injunction. So, so that's a long, boring version of the story. Yeah, there will be a pop quiz after the... <laughs> <laughs> But I want actually that brings up a point, which is that you have um, maybe that experience on Tidicut Follies informed how you approach the question of legal agreements with your subjects after. Yeah, it, it did in the sense in the Follies, I had tried to get written releases from everybody, and I had about 80 written releases because even though the, the inmates were in a prison for the criminally insane, uh, many of them. Um, uh, uh, lived up to the, the standards of what constituted the legal competency. Um, and for those that didn't meet that standard, I, I had the permission, or at least I thought I had the permission of the superintendent, who was their guardian. Uh, uh, but the fact that I didn't have some written releases was, had, didn't mean that the other people had refused. It was mainly my neglect in not getting them to sign the release in the press of the events around shooting the film. Uh, but the, the argument that we made was that even had the right of privacy existed, uh, uh, the Supreme Court in many cases, uh, uh, even in 19, by 1967, had decided when the right of privacy was in co conflict with the First Amendment, freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, that the First Amendment was the dominant value. Um, uh, and that's the argument we made. The reason that, that Richardson raised the privacy issue in the first place is because he wanted to prevent the case from being heard in the federal courts because he was fearful that if I raised the First Amendment argument in the federal courts, I would win. And, and, and he had a much greater chance of winning the case as he did in, in the state courts. Um, but the, it, we, we argued that the state had, uh, uh, there was a double standard applied, there was a conflict of interest. Because on the one hand, they were saying they wanted to protect the, the rights of the inmates and preserve their privacy. On the other hand, they were responsible for the conditions that the film showed and the way the inmates were kept. But that argument at that point didn't go very far. So when you're making a film now, you don't get written releases? I, from when I make a film now, I don't get written releases at all. I get tape-recorded consents. Uh, and that, and I haven't been, I haven't had any trouble since the Follies. Once or twice there were sort of mild threats, but they were quickly dissipated. <laughs> um, I also wanted to, to talk to you about another um, aspect of your particular way of approaching the question of making films. And you, um, you know, there's the idea of the expose that we were talking about before that's very common. Um, another idea that became quite common for a while, I don't know if it still is, was people saying, well, I wouldn't have dared to pick up a camera until I lived with my subjects for 25 years and <laughs> became a member of the family and you know, got to know everything that they did. You um, offered an example from one of your films, Essene, of a moment that you caught in that film is a perfect um, example of why you don't do that. 
uh, where you don't spend, you know, reams and reams of time with your subjects in advance. So I was wondering if we could just talk about that. Mm -hmm. No, I was wondering if you could just yeah, talk uh, about that. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I don't make the movies to seek new best friends. Uh, uh, so I don't, I mean, that's one reason I don't spend a lot of time. The other reason is, since none of the events are repeated, nothing is staged, I don't know uh, that I would know any more uh, at the end of a long period of time with them than I do, because I, I wouldn't be able to predict what was going to happen next. And it would also, uh, even if I spent 20 years, say, in a welfare center, the same people wouldn't be coming in every day. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and since I don't think the camera changes behavior uh, in any significant way, um, I, I don't do any research. I view the shooting of the film as the research. Uh, I usually only spend a day or two at the place before the shooting begins. And, and the purpose of the shooting is, is uh, just to accumulate material. I don't start off with any point of view or a thesis uh, or any idea of the duration of the film. Uh, I just collect sequences and uh, uh, on the assumption that, that I will be able to figure out some themes uh, and, 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 and uh, edit a dramatic narrative movie out of the rushes without knowing what the drama will be or uh, what the narrative will be. But the moment that you've offered as an example of why you don't do it the other way is the scene from Essene, the, the fly swatting. Is the what? The fly swatting scene in Essene where the... Oh, oh, yeah. oh. <laughs> right. That, that's, uh, well, I mean, that, that's just... The, I mean, really, the the metaphor for making these movies is Las Vegas, uh, because you, you you it's all a crapshoot. You you simply have to be ready to get whatever is going on that you think might be of interest, and you don't have time uh, to uh, 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 speculate what's going to happen. You have to be ready to shoot and. Uh, the, the scene that Kent's referring to is in, uh, scene, uh, in the movie I made about a monastery, a scene, uh, and there's a, uh, uh, it's a conference between the abbot, who's the head of this religious community, uh, Protestant Anglican monastery, and uh, another uh, monk whose name is Brother Wilfred, uh, who, and they're talking about why he doesn't like people to call him by his first name, and, and really it becomes clear in the course of the scene how much he dislikes everybody. And at one point, uh, uh, he reaches into his desk drawer and he looks up and he sees a fly. Uh, and he, you know, with great venom, uh, he swats the fly, uh, which is, you know, uh, was a perfect character study, actually. And we just happened to be rolling when, when that happened. And, it, you know, it's, I think it's the single funniest scene in any of my movies. Uh, but it's pure luck. Yeah, and you had said if you had been spending time, you know, not filming and yeah. missed that moment, yeah. you would have killed yourself. Right. <laughs> Your very words, that, I think. That, that's why when I stop shooting, uh, I sort of go away from the scene. Uh, and, and, you, and you can never stop and start within a scene because there's only one rule in these movies. And the mo if you stop because you think it's boring, that's exactly the time the most interesting thing will happen. So when I make up my mind that a scene is worth shooting, I go right to the end of it, which is one of the reasons I accumulate so much footage. Why, for example, in Berkeley, I had 250 hours. For the Follies, I think I only had about 80. So will the 250-hour director's cut of At Berkeley be available on the... <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a bonus. <laughs> <laughs> What is it when and the other pitfall, well, no pitfall, but the other condition when you're filming this way is that you're inevitably confronted with people who at first, this came up last night, uh, can be stiff. And then, you know, then they gradually forget that the camera is there. Uh, well, in, my, in my experience, I mean, the, the chancellor last night, the chancellor of Berkeley talked about the movie after it was over last night, and he said two minutes. I think it's about four seconds. Uh, and it's not, not always even four seconds. And I, I think that for a variety of reasons, principally because I don't think most of us 
have the capacity to become somebody else or to act differently. Uh, if we don't want our picture taken, we have summer nose or walk away. But if we agree, uh, we act in ways that are think, we think are appropriate for the situation, and that's exactly what you want. And most people aren't good enough actors to become somebody else. Otherwise, the level of acting on the stage in Hollywood would be, be greater than it is because the pool of potential actors would be so much greater. Um, I, I, I want to return to the, the, the question of, of literature because Fred's probably better read than almost anyone I know. And, um, ex no, not true. Who, who read all of Chekhov's short stories a couple of years ago? It wasn't me, it was you. <laughs> but no, I want to return to that because I, I, it's an inspiration in your work, literature, and a very powerful one. Well, um, I think I've learned more about making movies from what I've read than from the movies I've seen. Now that may, it's just a, uh, and, and the, because I, I think People work, no matter what form you're working in, whether it's movies or novels or plays or poems, the problems are the same. The way they're resolved is somewhat different. Uh, but the, the, the abstract issues are the same uh, of characterization, passage of time, uh, uh, abstraction, uh, et cetera. Uh, and um, uh, in, 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 you know, for example, in, in uh, Flaubert's letters to George Sand, I mean, you find some of the best uh, illustrations of film editing that I've ever read, mm -hmm. because he's talking about construction uh, of, of, his, of his novels. Mm -hmm. And the, the issues are directly, I mean, they're not literally applicable, but in an abstract way, they're completely relevant. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in UNESCO's essays about playwriting, it, 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 I mean, I, uh, I, I think it's, you know, he, as far as I'm concerned, he's talking about uh, film editing. And really, the best book I've read recently about film editing is uh, in, 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 Introduction to Poetry in an Anthology by Helen Vendler, uh, where, where in her analysis of poems, she's talking about the very same kinds of issues that I think I have to deal with in reducing uh, 250 Hours of Rushes to four-hour movie. So, and, and again, it's not a literal translation from one form to another, but it's an extremely useful uh, exercise in forcing me to think about how I deal with my issues and comparing them with how they're dealt with in other forms. Is there a concrete example from Vendler's, Helen Vendler's essay that you can point to that gives you... Uh Real well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a concrete example, but but I mean, the use of abstraction, mm -hmm. how how you deal with. Uh, I mean, I, I think a movie, at least as far as I'm concerned, my movies only work when they do work, because they proceed on two levels. They proceed on a literal level. This is happening. X says this to Y, but in terms of the organization of the film. Uh, the, there is a more abstract level, and that is when you put X in relation to Y, what does that do to both X and Y? And what more general statement comes out of the linkage of the two or more sequences? Hmm. I mean, for example, for any of you who have seen Berkeley, there's a, a scene early in the film uh, of a robot uh, folding a towel. Uh, well, at the end of the film, there's reference to uh, possibility in a thousand years of a, uh, either robots or the remains of humankind taking a trip to Sirius. Well, you're seeing the big, by linking those two sequences, you're seeing the beginning, perhaps the beginning, of that endeavor that may take place a thousand years from now. Yeah. Yeah. Another example that comes to mind would be in Belfast, Maine, where you're looking at um, and the, the class that comes near the end of the film where Moby Dick is being taught. Right. Um, and then you're looking at a community that would have been once, at one time, a vibrant fishing community. Which, which was a whaling city. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Where, where now canning fish is. Right, sardine yeah. factory, right. The size is diminished. <laughs> uh, uh. A metaphor for modern life, I guess. Right. Yeah. You can take some questions from the audience if you'd like. Yes. 
How do you figure out how to approach your subjects without doing much research? Also, have you ever spent a long time working with a subject and then realized that there's not much there? No, there's, to answer the second question first, that hasn't happened. And what I do, for example, at Berkeley, I think I'd been to Berkeley once before I even had the idea of doing the movie there because I showed a movie on the campus one time. And then um, I, I went out to visit the chancellor to get permission and I hadn't really spent any time on the campus at all. And then I st started the movie. Um, uh, and I had, because Berkeley was so vast, is so vast, I had, I hired somebody who knew the campus and knew the faculty uh, to be my liaison to explain what I was doing because the, Berkeley was too big for me to b both shoot the film and, uh, and, and hang around uh, meeting people. So I would say to him, I, I would like to do, uh, uh, go to an English class uh, in two days. Uh, what, and I would say that I was interested in class in American literature, I was interested in class in, uh, in poetry, and he would come up with a list of what was happening in the next couple of days. And I'd say, well, I, I wanna go, you know, can I go to the class on John Donne without, you know, knowing what poem was gonna be discussed or where they were in the semester and just take the chance and just start, you know, uh, I, I probably called up the professor in advance and said, explain what I was doing and said, was it all right to show up the next day at 10 o'clock? And they said, yes, and just set up to shoot the whole class. Um, which is, I mean, that's the way it happened. And then it's only later in the editing, because the editing, there's no, there's no time pressure. Uh, and I can look at a sequence as many times as I want for as long as I want. And what, what, you don't have a chance during the shooting to do much thinking about the material because it's happening so fast in the end of a 12, 14 hour day, you're, you're tired and you, have, and, and you still have to watch rushes. Uh, and so it's only when you're in the comfort of the editing room and you can sit down and look at the material and think about the implications of what's going on that I begin to get ideas about what the film will be. And as I said yesterday in the discussion, I really don't, all I do in the beginning is edit individual sequences. You know, uh, the first thing I do is look at all the rushes, and then I set a, I put aside about 50% of the material. Then I edit all those sequences that I think might make it into the final film. And then when I have all those so-called candidate sequences edited in close to final form, I then work on the first assembly. But that's after anywhere from eight to 10 months of editing. And then I can do the first assembly of the movie in three or four days at that point because I've got all the sequences edited in pretty decent form and I can make the changes quickly. I, I, don't, I don't have the capacity to edit in the abstract. I have to see what the consequence, consequences are of when, I put, when I try to put the sequences in a particular order. Um, and then that first version of the film usually comes out to 30 or 40 minutes longer than the final film. Then it takes me another six weeks or so to uh, where I work on the internal rhythm in the sequence and then the external rhythm. By that I mean the transitions between the sequences and I fiddle with the structure and then I have a final, what I think is a final film. Then I go back and look at everything all over again. And then, and then I get ready for the mix. How did your experience at Williams College affect your outlook on life? How did it affect my outlook on what? Your outlook on life. Yeah. On life? I, 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 Williams College forced me to grow up because I was innocent and naive. Uh, and the severe anti-Semitism that existed in Williams when I went there in 1947 had a very sobering effect on me, uh, despite the fact that I knew about anti-Semitism. But uh, have, I, I had never experienced it directly. Uh, and that, you know, I, uh, you know I, I can't thank Williams for being anti-Semitic, but it had a very sobering effect on me. Have you ever had a subject who would not give you consent to film them? Yeah, occasionally, very rarely. It's very rare that anybody refuses to be filmed. I don't, you know, what the explanation of that is, I don't know. But among the possible explanations are vanity, indifference, 
uh, etc. What's the new film? Uh, new film is on the National Gallery in London. Um, it's about why your films are available. Well, they're available to institutions, and you can find Fred's films on. Um, they're on all available uh, uh, on DVD through my company, Zipporah Films, on the internet. You can buy them through you know, on the internet. Oh, why, yeah, I decided to set up my own distribution company because I didn't get any offers that made any sense from the commercial distributors. So I figured I had nothing to lose, and it was, it was a good decision because I get to keep the money. Whatever, if the money comes in, I get to keep it. And I, and I had experience with my first with high school in City Cut Follies where the distributors made a lot of money in the films, but I didn't, and I had to... I ended up suing the distributor. You never see any money other than the initial advance. I mean, occasionally, if the movie does fantastically well, they can't find ways of cheating you out of it. Uh, uh, but as W.C. Fields gets in the bank tick, you get a hearty hand clasp, right? Mm -hmm. from the, you get a hearty hand clasp, just yeah, like in the bank tick, right. from the distributor, Alistair. Um, it's a question about uh, the beauty, actually, of, of your images and... Uh, the framing in your films, and so it's a question about, just a question about, to ask you to talk about your shooting technique, and maybe also about, uh, could enlarge on it by shift, uh, talking about your shift from 16 to uh, digital. Well, I mean, you, you try to take the time to get, I mean, you want to make as lovely, beautiful movie as you can, so you take the time, you know, you, you, you do it uh, as best you can. Uh, and um, what you see in the final film is the best of the images. You don't see the ones that didn't work. Um, um, and uh, the switch to digital is not one that I particularly like because I, I, I think I still think film looks better than than digital. Uh, and I intensely dislike editing on the Avid system but I have no choice because I can't get the money to shoot on film. In addition to the lab, the 16, it's very hard to get 16 processing anymore. Thanks, Fred, and thank you all for coming. Thank, thank you, you all. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.